Well, today we are getting back into our series on Ephesians, and if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to the first chapter. We're taking a slow walk through this incredible letter written by a man named the Apostle Paul. Now, some of you may, may be familiar with this book, some of you may not be, but just to give you an update on where we've been a little bit, the, the Ephesians were very um, non-godly people, into paganism, into occult worship, into idolatry, and the gospel comes into their area and begins to transform lives. And people realize they're caught in this battle between the good, which is God, and these evil powers that are all around them. But Paul's getting them anchored in their faith and reminding them what they have in Christ. In the first chapter, um, starting with verse 3, he launches into this doxology, this, this statement of praise. Now, in your Bible, it's about six or seven sentences, but from verses 3 to 14, it's actually one long, never-ending sentence of praise. It's as if Paul got talking about the Lord and couldn't stop. He just got praising God, and he was just praising God the Father. And we looked at all that last week, how, how he has blessed us and chosen us and adopted us and poured grace upon grace over us. And today we're going to focus on the second part of that, of, of Jesus and what Jesus does for us. And then he's going to move to the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does for us, because all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are part of what we as Christians call the Trinity. And it's, it's one of those mysteries. We don't know how all that works, how, how God can be one and yet be be present in three different personalities or persons who have different functions, but that all work together. They're all part of our salvation. They all have a work in our spiritual growth. They all are a part of this thing called the church. The, the church is the family of God, the Father. It is the body of Jesus Christ. It is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we see that again and again and again throughout Paul's writings. But today he's focused on Jesus and now Jesus is the focal point of all the blessings that God has given us. Now, if you're a believer, you need to know how incredibly blessed you really are. You may not feel blessed, but I'm telling you, you are blessed. And every blessing God wants to give you is already available to you for you to access through your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's trying to explain to us as we go through this passage. Now, if you're new to church, you may wonder how this old book written almost 2,000 years ago speaks to us today, but the needs of people haven't changed. And, and God hasn't changed. And they intersect very beautifully in our lives today. And if you let God's word speak to you, you'll find your, your eyes getting, getting lifted from beyond the circumstances all around you, all the trouble, all the negativity, to someone who wants to do something amazing in your life, who wants to bless you in ways that are almost unfathomable. God wants to do that through your relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, we want to help you have a relationship with Christ because he is the focal point of all the blessings. Sometime, if you're willing to do this, I challenge you to go through the book of Ephesians and every time Jesus is mentioned, whether it's by name Jesus or the Christ or the Son of God or in him, if you would circle that, you will find dozens of times it's mentioned because Paul cannot get away from the fact that everything we need is found in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to open up this book today. We're going to read in Ephesians chapter 1. But I'm going to ask you to do something that I've asked you to do every week, that we pause and ask God to speak to us. Let's open our hearts that his word would penetrate and, and provide for us what we need. Maybe, maybe encouragement, maybe challenge, maybe correction. Uh, pray that God would speak to you today through his Holy Spirit. We really believe God speaks in the now through his spirit that's present in this place today and as we open up his word. So let's do that. Father, 
Speak to us through your word right now. We pray that it would come alive in our hearts. Help us to understand uh, the, the bigger picture of what you're up to in the world and in particular what you're up to in our lives. And give us the courage to humbly say yes to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm gonna start with verses seven all the way to verse 12. In him, speaking of Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, their forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. See, even with those periods in there, it's still a mouthful to read this doxology. And that really was only part of one sentence in the Greek. But we broke it up and we're breaking it up last week and this week and next week to, to get a grasp of what is it that God has done for us. How has he blessed us? And this reveals to us three huge blessings that God gives us through Christ. These are three big words. They're, they're big concepts. For some of you may say, wow, I never even thought of this issue before. Never thought about that angle before, and you're gonna get stretched today, but I want you to see that God is very deep, and God is profound in what he's done for us. And so we're looking at three big Christian words today. The first one is the word redemption. We have redemption according to the riches of God's grace, the forgiveness of our sins. In the time of Paul writing this letter, there were 60 million slaves estimated in the, in the Roman Empire, and slaves were property, Slaves were bartered and sold like a commodity. They were things, not people. And so for a slave to be redeemed meant that a slave would be freed or loosed from their bondage. They would be delivered from a situation that they could not deliver themselves from. And in order for that redemption to take place, a payment had to be made. This payment was called a ransom, a ransom. Now, when we hear the word ransom, what do you think of? A kidnapping. You know, somebody's taken somebody's kid or, or somebody's spouse and they're held hostage somewhere and they get a note that says, okay, if you want your loved one back, it's gonna cost you $4 million. That's a ransom. Well, it's, it's somewhat similar to that. A ransom is a payment made to bring freedom to another party. And so here we have Paul writing that saying that we have been redeemed. We have been ransomed. But it raises the question, from whom? Who's holding us hostage? And what was the ransom price? Well, immediately you might think, well, the, the person holding us hostage is Satan. Because he is the prince of this world. He has power over people that are disobedient. And there's a sense that, yes, he does have some control over us. But you need to know this. Nothing is owed to Satan. Okay? So this is not a ransom that's owed to him. Nothing is... Nothing is going to be paid to Satan to free us because the real problem we have is a problem with sin. See, Jesus said this in John chapter eight. He said that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We were made in the image of God. We were made to belong to God. We were made to reflect the image of God in our lives, but the problem is this. We have chosen to reject that and go a different direction. 
See, God's law, God's expectations are in his law, and his law can be summarized in the Ten Commandments. Now, if you know the Ten Commandments, the first four are laws that all talk about how we love God, how we don't have any other images, we don't worship any other name but his name, hold his name in high regard, we have a Sabbath day in which we honor him. All that is to say we love God. And then the, the last six of the Ten Commandments are all expressions of love to others, love to our parents, love to our spouses, love to our neighbors. We don't lie, we don't kill, we don't steal, we don't commit adultery. You know, all these things that we avoid doing, it's because of our love for other people. And here's the problem. You and I have chosen, not once, but repeatedly, to thumb our nose at God's law and do things our way. And not to love God as we should, and not to love other people as we should. It's not that God's law is like so high, nobody can attain it. It's just that I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And here's the problem. When you choose not to let God be the master, you've now let sin be the master. Because this is the truth. Whoever you obey is your master. And if you're obeying sin, sin's your master. So the problem is with sin. And here's how Paul says it in Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, Paul says, we know that the law is spiritual, meaning it's good, it's right, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing, but the problem is this, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. The problem isn't this, the problem is this. I've got a heart that's warped, that's distorted, that, that leans toward sin. And when you break God's law and break it repeatedly like, like we have done, the law requires Justice, which means there is a payment, there is a consequence for your disobedience. In fact, the Bible says it this way, the wages of sin is death. What that means is the ransom for sin, what's required to satisfy the law because of sin, is death. You will die. The problem is, if you die, then you can't live. (laughs) So, yeah, you can satisfy the law, but then there's no life. So here's what God did. All through history, God said, okay, I want you to get this in your head that the wages of sin is death. You, you don't have to die for your sins, but one of your animals does. So take your goat, take your lamb, take your bull, take your uh, bird, whatever it is, whatever the sacrifice was, and sacrifice it for me. And so the, the Jewish culture had this whole sacrificial system, a constant remembrance of the consequence for sin. The payment of sin is someone shedding their blood because blood was a source of life. You shed someone's blood, they die. So, so life and death, they're all kind of wrapped up in this, in this blood. And so can you imagine the families all the time and kids say, Mom, Dad, why do we have to kill Buffy over here because she's so fluffy and, and she's beautiful and, and, and she'd win a prize at the 4-H fair. She's just perfect. Well, that's why she's perfect. We have to give her to God and sacrifice her. Well, why? Because we've been bad. That's why. And God in his mercy says, we don't have to die, but the animal does. And all this was foreshadowing a time when God was going to deal with the sin issue. One of, the, one of the main symbolisms was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. One day a year, when sacrifice for sin was made for the whole nation of Israel, part of that day, they, they would take two goats and cast lots, and, and one goat would be sacrificed. It would be slaughtered. The blood would be sprinkled uh, in the temple to bring it Um, to purify it, in a sense, symbolically purify it. The other goat was kept alive. And what the priest would do is place his hands on that goat and symbolically transfer the sins of the nation of Israel upon this animal and then send the animal out into the wilderness, never to be seen again. 
you probably heard of the word scapegoat. You know what the scapegoat is? Scapegoat is when someone else takes the hit or the blame for someone else's wrongdoing. That, that, it's a biblical term. That's where it came from. This goat became the scapegoat. It escaped. It took away the sin, which is what forgiveness means. Forgiveness means a taking away. So God takes away. He's showing them, I'm going to take away your sins. As far as the east is from the west, I'm going to remove them from you, never to be seen again. And all this foreshadowed a time when the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, would come. And get this. Jesus not only was the animal to be sacrificed, he's the Lamb of God, He's the priest that offers the sacrifice because he offered himself as that gift to give us forgiveness for our sins. In Titus chapter two, verse 14, Paul said, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all the wickedness and to to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. So now that he's purified us, we say, I don't want to live in sin anymore. I want to live according to your way. You have freed us. He gave his life for us, for you, for me. Why? So we could live now for him, live to please him. There was a a little boy, I heard this story years ago. He'd carved a wooden boat out of a piece of wood. And he loved this little boat. It was his own little possession. And one day during a rainstorm, he put it in the gutter and watched the boat go down the, the, the street. But he didn't realize that around the bend of the street was, was the, the, the grater. And it actually went through the grate into the, the system, and he lost his boat. And months later, he was walking through his town, came across a yard sale, and noticed his boat there. Someone had found his boat. And it was for sale for 50 cents. So he dashed home, he broke open his piggy bank, got his nickels and diamonds together, ran back over there, and he paid the 50 cents to buy back his boat. And as he walked away, he said, I own you twice. Once because I made you, and twice because I bought you back. And that is the picture of redemption. God owns us because he made us. But because we got carried away with sin and and got under another master, God came searching for us, and he paid a price to buy us back. That is the picture of redemption. In 1 Peter, uh, toward the end of that first chapter, he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your ancestors, but it is with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The precious blood of Christ. We get... We get wrapped up in blood in the church. It's not because it's gory. It's because blood means life. And it was the life of Christ given for us. When we take the Lord's Supper and take that little cup of grape juice and it represents the blood of Christ, it reminds us he gave his blood for me. He gave his life for me. It wasn't like, a, like he went down to the center and just had a little bit of blood. He gave his very life so that I could have life. He became my redeemer by being my substitute on the cross. Did you know that when Jesus was on the cross, by the way, he, he yelled out a statement that in, in the, the original language was the word tetelestai. It's one word, tetelestai. It's a business term. It means paid in full. But it's not translated paid in full in your Bibles. It's translated this. It is finished. It's done. The price has been paid. The ransoms have been paid. You are, you are set to go free. That's the beauty of Redemption. That comes through Jesus Christ according to the riches of his grace. Then he goes on and says that through Christ we know the mystery of God's will according to God's pleasure. 
Now, what is this mystery? I, I, I grew up liking mystery, Hardy Boy mysteries, mystery shows. It's like a, a puzzle you're trying to put together to figure out a conclusion. But that's not how biblical mysteries were. In, in that day, and by the way, in Ephesians, Paul uses the word mystery seven times. So it's a very significant word to that group of people. They're very familiar with what's called mystery religions. The religions that were tied to the The gods and goddesses of the culture were known as mystery religions because they didn't have Bibles with doctrinal statements. They were very, they called esoteric, very emotional, very feeling-oriented. And only the insiders had the secret knowledge. If you were on the inside of that that religion, you got to know uh, all all the deeper things. But on the outside, nobody knew because there really wasn't a book that talked about it. And so they were called mystery religions. They're all over Ephesus and the Asia Minor area. But Paul goes on to say, hey, I'm going to tell you the mystery. I'm going to explain to you what the mystery of God is. It's not a puzzle you have to solve. It's it's simply this. A mystery, according to Scripture, is a truth that was once concealed has now been revealed. Something that was once concealed is now revealed. So what is it? What is the mystery? Well, you're going to have to wait till we get to chapter 3. Okay, I'm going to take you there right now. We're going to go to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 6. Here's, here's the mystery. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of the one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. This is the mystery. That through Christ, God is bringing things together once again. Sin has disrupted the whole world. But everything, not just, not just people, but, but everything is coming under the headship of Christ. That's where this world is heading. Back to where he is in this position of authority over everything. But specifically, over the membership within his family being open to those that are Gentiles. Now, if you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. And we may think this isn't great, a, a big deal. I know Jesus loves everybody and everybody's invited to be a Christian. But hold on. If you lived in this culture, you grew up not going to church, not having a Bible. You're like the kid that goes to the playground fence that says, I wish I could get in, but I can't. And they're having a lot of fun over there. They were looking across the fence and and said, you know, our gods are pretty puny compared to their God, that the God of the Israelites does miracles. He provides miraculously for his people. He, He blesses those people. He fights for his people and is victorious. He speaks to his people. He's even present with his people in a powerful way, a cloud by day and fire by night. And, and I wish we had a God like that, but we can't because it's not ours. In fact, Paul reminds them when he gets to the second chapter, verses 12 and 13, reminds them of where they were. He says, remember that at that time before Christ, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants and the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God has laid out the welcome mat and said, come on in. The doors are open to everybody. Can you imagine those that have been on the outside saying, we get to go in now? It's open membership? Unbelievable. But you and I need to remind ourselves, that's who we are. We're the ones that get invited in in this time period to be part of God's ever-expanding family. The blood of Christ unites us together with people of all time periods, of all races, under one head, Jesus Christ. We are one body, one building, one vine. We are one in Christ. That is the mystery that God has revealed. And then we come to this one, that we have been predestined through Christ according to God's plan. 
It says here, in him you have also been chosen. And, and by the way, your footnote in your Bible probably has a little, little statement that says this could be translated one of two ways. Either, either we are an inheritance or we receive an inheritance. And, and a lot of scholars lean toward we have become an inheritance, meaning we are his people, we are chosen. But it could also mean we've received an inheritance, and either one is very biblical, so there's really not a debate over that. But what causes a lot of controversy is this other big word, predestination. Predestination, you just need to know, is a biblical word. It's a biblical word. It means that God has determined our destination in advance. He's, he's actually determined our destination in advance. And they're, they're generally two views. I say generally because within each of these there's branches and people who believe different things, but just to show you that there are kind of two major views of this. One is called what I call Calvinism, the reform view, uh, a deterministic view that, that believes that God is sovereign, and because God is sovereign, that he makes the decisions all by himself. Man has no input in his decision making because therefore God gets all the glory. And so this view sees predestination as very individual and unconditional. Very individual and unconditional. Meaning God has, God has put a mark on every person that's going to go into heaven and everyone else goes to hell. And God has determined who goes to which place and we shouldn't argue because it's God's world and God can decide what God wants to do. And so God has full authority over who goes to heaven and who doesn't. Those whom he chooses come to faith in Christ. They don't choose to believe they are given belief as a gift. And therefore, belief isn't to be saved. Belief is something that shows you are saved. It is a result of your salvation. Now, the, uh, kind of the opposite view or the challenging view to that that arose during the Reformation by a man named Jacob Arminius is called Arminianism or it's the free will view. And it says that predestination is corporate and conditional. Corporate and conditional. So corporate meaning it's as a group, that God has not ordained every individual for a specific destination. He has ordained his body in Christ. For example, the church. So, so he's chosen us in Christ. So that's why Christ is always tied to that because it's who's in Christ. He doesn't choose us apart from Christ. He chooses us in Christ. And anyone in Christ has already have a, a, has a determined destination that they will go to heaven. If you're in Christ, you're going to heaven. It's like, it's like a, a ship that's sailing. It's going to that destination. That's what he's saying there. And it is conditional, meaning you get to choose whether you want to be in Christ or not. You respond in faith. It is a prerequisite for salvation. So, so you are responsible for where you spend eternity. Now, both of these views support the doctrine of sovereignty of God, they just look at it a little differently. One says God is sovereign, he makes all the decisions. One says God is sovereign, but in the sovereignty allows man to make some decisions. And, and both believe that God has predetermined a destination. Just one says it's for every individual, one says it's for the church who all are in Christ. And you may wonder, oh, Pastor, then, then what do you believe or what does our church believe? And, and we believe as a church, as a leadership of the church, the second view the second view, which says that, that, that God allows us the choice whether to be part of the body of Christ or not. Now, both find very big biblical support. Both views are taught by, by many churches, many great Christian leaders. But there's some things that are so much in common with both that, that they are no longer becoming fighting kind of words, fighting positions. Because 
we all believe that God has a plan that he is working out and nobody is going to thwart his plan. And we also believe that man has a responsibility to respond to what God has done for him. And that ultimately, wherever man spends eternity, he is responsible for that destination. And so I want to share with you from Romans chapter 9 through 11, just a summary of a picture. I think it's a word picture that might help you see why we as a church have, have held a certain position when it comes to predestination, this view about this corporate predestination. It's found in Romans chapter 11. Paul's trying to reason with the, the Jewish people to say um, why God is bringing the Gentiles into the church and how come some of those that grew up in Israel aren't really Israel, aren't really part of the family of God and why some people are. And so if you've got a Bible, Romans chapter 11, I'm going to start reading with verse 17. He says, some of the branches have been broken off. So there's this picture here of this tree. This tree. He says, some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, he's speaking to the Gentiles, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap of the olive root. So there's this tree. It's like a tree that grew up, and, and people, if you were from the nation of Israel, you were part of that tree. And now God has been grafting in these wild branches that are us, the Gentiles. Okay? And he says, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches if you do consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. So just because you've been added to the vine or to the tree, don't boast about it because you don't hold yourself there. The, the nourishing energy from the root, which is Jesus Christ, holds you there. It's like Jesus when he said, I'm the vine, you are the branches, you must abide in me. He says that in verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off so I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. You stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. What Paul's saying is, some branches were broken off. Why? Because of unbelief. And he says, you were grafted in. You know why? Because you believed. So, you see, human human um, effort or human decision involved in believing and not believing, but he, then he warns them, be careful, because if he didn't spare the, the Jewish branches that didn't believe, the same could happen to you. So, so continue in God's kindness. Verse 22, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off and if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in. Again, the ones that have broken off, God says, I can bring them back in. All they have to do is return to faith. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted in to a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So he's just saying, you know, the wild ones got put in and they, they actually adapted and grew. How much more will the natural ones that broke off be brought back in? if they don't persist in unbelief. Another way to picture this would be a ship. God has ordained this ship to go from here to there. Nothing's ever gonna stop it. It is going from here to there. It's going from earth to heaven. And, and we get on the ship through faith. And within that, we have choices we make even while we're on the ship. And some may go to the galley to eat. And some may do things. We make decisions all through our lives. But as long as we're trusting in Christ, our destination's been predetermined. God will get us there safely. We don't have to strive for it. We don't have to work for it. And we get to that destination. We don't, we, don't, we don't praise ourselves for getting on the ship. We praise the captain for getting us to the destination. 
God gets all the glory. Because it says there at the very end, this. He says that, that we were made for the praise of his glory. We were made for the praise of his glory. So often we get that twisted around. I think we, we get this impression that somehow God was brought into the world to make our lives better. Somehow God was brought to enhance our lives and, and make us comfortable, make us happy. And if God doesn't do that, shame on God. But, but God says, no, it's the other way around. I put you on this earth to bring me glory. I put you on this earth to reflect me in your life so that more people would love and worship me. That's why I put you here, to point people to me, to redirect them. Jesus brings us good so that we would bring him glory. Jesus does good things in our lives. Why? So we can then tell people how awesome he is. About a month ago, our staff, some of our staff went off on a retreat in Buena Vista. And the camp director there at this place showed me a place on a hill where water was coming out of some rocks. And he said, if you ever want to fill up a water bottle, go right to this spot because this water is one of the three purest sources of water in the whole state of Colorado. He said, deep rock actually comes and buys our water that they then rebottle for distribution. And it just reminded me of the fact that if you want to get to the, the purest water, you get close to the source. And if you want to get to the purest blessings you can ever have in your life, you've got to get to the source. And the source, the fount of every blessing, is Jesus Christ. You will not find them outside of Christ. You will not find them down the river a ways. You find them in Christ, which just tells us, I've got to get close to Jesus. I've got to get close to Jesus. How do you get close to Jesus? You trust him. You believe in him. You say yes to him when he calls you. Today he's calling you to surrender to him, to trust him more, to let him be the focal point of your life. And so I'm gonna ask you to stand, invite our prayer partners to be available up front here. We're just gonna worship Jesus, source of every blessing. If today you need to get closer to Jesus, we invite you to come and pray. Maybe to surrender to Jesus. Maybe to surrender a part of your life to Jesus. Maybe you've had a struggle with him. We invite you to surrender. And let's worship the source of all blessings.